Our passage this morning is taken from Ezekiel 37. Last week, we heard of the exile, the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah in the Babylonian captivity from Psalm 137. This week, we have the promise of restoration from Ezekiel the prophet. Many of the prophets not only spoke of the exile, the major prophets, that is, they also spoke of the restoration But you can really read of the restoration efforts in historical books like Ezra, Nehemiah. And then the minor prophets continue to talk about life in the restoration as well. But this morning we get a glimpse of it while the people are still in captivity. And Ezekiel is shown what the people are to expect next. Young Christians, young theologians, this is a very strange story. This is a story about bones and skeletons. And so the question is... What does this have to do with us? Where are we in the story? This is the good news of Jesus that comes to us surprisingly and gives to us life. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a sound and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, we have sung it, and we have heard it in our baptismal instruction. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would dwell in us and that we would dwell with you 
and that we would be one with you. We pray that our hearts would be knit together with yours and that our minds would be too and our lives would be filled up with your life. Left to ourselves, we are dry bones. But in the gospel, Jesus calls to us and says, dry bones, live. And so now do this among us and with us and in us for it, we'll give you thanks. We ask in the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. And would you be seated? <clears throat> After the exile comes restoration. After being torn down comes being rebuilt. After our voluntary misery comes the deep mercy of God. God shows us the reality of our hearts to show us the greater reality of His own. And standing in the middle of all of this, between the people who offend and the God who reconciles, is the prophet bearing the message. Ezekiel was a prophet which was nobody's chosen profession. It was chosen for you. You were chosen for it. To be a prophet meant that you were haunted. Haunted by the Word of God at all hours of the day and night, telling you to stand up straight and speak out even if you didn't feel like it at the moment. Being a prophet means that you were hated by just about everyone. Telling people what they need to hear doesn't generally make you friends and win you influence. Being God's mouthpiece means that the good news is always, always prefaced by bad news. And after you open with the bad news, people don't typically hang around for the punchline. They yell things about your mother They throw things at you like rocks and sticks. Or they throw you into a well like Jeremiah. Or into a blast furnace like Daniel. Or if things are particularly not going your way, God might throw you down the gullet of a whale like Jonah. Being a prophet was bad enough when you were telling people to repent before it's too late. But it was downright awful work when you had to tell them, time's up. And God's sending you into exile for your unbelief and your chintzy love. It wasn't a career field with a lot of opportunity. Haunted and hated was as good as it got. But it was an important job. Because we all need the truth, whether we like it or not. Because the truth, the bad news answered by the good news... Or the good news required on account of the bad news is the only thing that can make lopsided hearts even and upright again. The truth breaks the heart, but it's the only thing that can make it whole and make it free. Because the truth is so sweeping, sin is so awful, worse than we're willing to see and say, But God's grace to sinners in Jesus crucified as a sinner and raised from the grave 
a righteous vindication because that grace is so great, greater than great. Because the truth is so epic in scale, usually the message is delivered to the prophet in very dramatic ways. And for Ezekiel, the drama of the gospel comes to him in a boneyard. I don't know if you've ever been to a place like this, but it's a little creepy. On New Year's Eve, I was riding a horse through the Brazos River Valley. And in a green pasture, there was a pile of bones. Vertebrae, mostly, from a bull or a cow who had fallen there and melted away to nothing. They were perfect and chalky white. Oddly shaped with this central cavity and ridges and knobs. And I don't know why I did it, but I took them. I tied them onto my saddle. And the next day, we got into Jeeps and we drove down to a trash pit, a massive hole cut in the ground by a backhoe where carcasses were disposed of on the ranch. And we collected more bones. A hip, a bone we don't know how to identify. And at one point, I climbed down into the pit and climbed back out of it with a longhorn skull, horns still intact. It was fascinating, but it's still just a little disturbing. Because we aren't used to seeing things turned inside out, and we're not accustomed to seeing things so interminably dead. But that's how the Bible and the gospel show us ourselves. Ezekiel was carried by the Lord to a valley that would have kept forensic specialists working around the clock until the clock ran out. Not a patch of bare ground as far as the eye could see. Everywhere bones, too many to count, too many to grasp. And Ezekiel was led by the Lord to walk through the valley to get the scale of the place. And as he walked, he wrenched his own bones, twisting his ankle as the noisy pile shifted and fell away under his weight. Plunging through at one point and scraping his shins in the misstep getting a ribcage caught on his foot, and the irreverent embarrassment of the odd skull accidentally kicked out ahead of him. But this is where the gospel came to him, because this is where the gospel does its work. Ezekiel is about to see a forecast of coming historical events with deep theological realities spread thick over top of them. The events pictured here, are the kingdom of Persia rolling over the Babylonian empire. A new superpower has come to town, and Babylon finally gets what it has coming to it. Finally, Babylon gets what the end of Psalm 137 called for last week. And as Persia takes Babylon, Cyrus, the king of Persia, will be moved by God to an unpredictable, unprecedented generosity, and he'll offer to send all of his inherited Jewish prisoners home. I have no qualms with you. I don't need you here. I want to send you home. Only 50,000 will actually take Cyrus up on his offer initially. That's very few. 
And when they get back home to Judah, there's nothing left. The place is in ruins. That's why no one to speak of is all that excited to go home. There isn't home anymore. The cities and towns have been turned to rock piles. Twenty years after the first wave of Judeans goes back to Judah, the temple is rebuilt and the priesthood is reestablished. And Cyrus sent the vessels for worship back with them and so worship begins properly again. And 50 years after that, 50 years after that, the wall around Jerusalem is rebuilt and people from every town and village and region in Judah begin to repopulate the capital city under construction. It took 70 years to get this far, and there's still far more to do. But Ezekiel doesn't see any of that detail. He sees it much more viscerally, and he sees it much more personally. Stumbling through his river of bones, he is stopped. And God says to his prophet, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel doesn't know how to answer the question, so he answers it correctly. Oh, Lord God, you know. I don't know what to say about that, but you know what to say. And God says to his prophet, prophesy over them. Preach the good news to them. And here's your sermon, Ezekiel. Say, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews on you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you, and fill you with breath, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And then it happened, just as the Lord said it would in the prophet's mouth. An awful rattling and clacking as bones stack themselves in anthropomorphic piles and sinews lashed them like ships rigging and they pulled on skins like wetsuits and they waited, sagging like deflated mannequins until God's breath breathed in them and filled them like pink human sails. God said, Here is Israel, my people. I have given myself, my people, back. And if you ask them, Ezekiel, what they have to say for themselves, they will be compelled to confess their sin. And this is what they'll say. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. But see, son of man, in my love, I make dry bones, long dead, living, breathing saints again. all of this, the good news is what God showed to his prophet, Jesus wants to do with you every day. What Jesus showed to Ezekiel is the very thing he means to do with you every single day. Which is to stand in the wreckage of your lives where you are casualties and fatalities and raise you up out of it. In your most hopeless, desperate, disheartening, heart-sick circumstances. In your most painful, sin-scarred, ruinous situations. In your 
dry valleys, the places you can't imagine will ever be filled with joy and laughter again. The places where though you have tried, you can't call yourself back to life. That's where the gospel will come to you most dramatically. Jeremy Bentham was a professor of philosophy, a British philosopher, the father of utilitarianism. And he willed his entire massive estate to the University College Hospital in London on one condition. That following his death, his body be preserved and prepared and he be allowed to sit in attendance at all the hospital board meetings. Probably to be a reminder of his philosophy that stated... The happiness of the greatest number of people is what should move us in the ways we live and the policies we make. The board wanted the money, regardless of what they thought of his philosophy, so they complied with his wishes. And a famous surgeon on staff at the hospital did the work, and here's how they did it. It was Bentham's skeletal frame, and they made a wax figure, a wax replica of Bentham, and they put it over the frame, and they dressed him up in one of his best suits and put a hat on his head and seated him in an armchair and put his favorite walking stick in his hand and pulled him up to the table. And for 92 years, he posthumously attended all the hospital board meetings. That really isn't meant to shock or disturb, but this is. We do the same thing every day. We give death and sin seats at the table. We give death and sin loud, prominent votes in our lives. We give ourselves to be governed by them, and that's why we can feel so dry, like our hearts pump sand, deader than dead. But, the whole work of Jesus is to be the new Ezekiel. The prophet who goes to the valley, and he doesn't just visit this valley, he throws himself down in this valley. Brings himself to the end in this valley. With the cross, Jesus made himself no better than a stack of bones judged and forgotten and trodden underfoot. And then, with his own gospel prophesying himself, prophesying his own faithful righteousness and love. He regathered and recollected himself. He called himself to life and stood up out of death again. And so he stands to preach over you authoritatively because we are all frighteningly skilled at disassembling our lives and leaving ourselves dried up with sin, not a drop of wet life in us anywhere. But Jesus who suffers the valley of sin to sanctify it in himself and to make it submit can knit us back together in forgiveness and justification and grace. And he can drape us with new skins, the skins of glory which look like righteousness, simple and pure and not needing a lot of explanation and never claiming excuse. And he can fill us with breath 
His Spirit who breathes the gospel through us so we no longer have to gasp and cough in airless fits of unbelief and doubt, but He gives us for ourselves and each other lungfuls of truth, which is thrilling to hear and to read, and maybe for some few of us it gives a glimmer of hope But then reality sets in and we realize so rarely do we live the promise of these verses. We never hear the rattle of our own bones. We never feel divine breath filling us, resuscitating our hearts. Why? It's not as if Jesus is silent. He proclaims himself to us every day through the scriptures through the faithfulness and exhortation of friends who believe the gospel urgently for us, even when we don't believe it for ourselves, through the stings of conscience given by the Holy Spirit and the calls to repentance and the assurances of pardon, through the gospel preached to dull tin ears and the splash of baptism and bread and wine passed around tables with the words, this is my body and blood, your new life. Endlessly, tirelessly, Jesus proclaims over us, dry bones live and nothing. Why? How it's buried in verses 12 and 13. Behold, I will open your graves and I will raise you from your graves, O my people. And you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Why are we never restored in the gospel? Why are we never rebuilt out of our exile? Because somehow we never call our sin what it is. In these two verses, it's named four times with its proper gruesome name. Graves. And because we never call our sin by its proper name, we are not able to admit the truth of ourselves, which is we are hopeless. We are helpless without the intervention of our redeeming God. We actually want our God to violate his character. Maybe he doesn't prefer our sin, but he should allow it. Or at least help us market it and make it look more acceptable. We want him to let us have our sin and allow us to rename it, to call it by another name and join us in it. Call it by something a little bit more pedestrian. We'll call our sin workable, manageable, coping. Some of us are even more brazen than that. Let's just go ahead and call it what I feel about it. Let's call it paradise, the best of all possible worlds, because that's what it feels like to me. We want him to give us our sin, but not its effect. But to save us, he won't spare us. To be restored, you can't repackage your sin or call the grave by another name. And you can't call yourself anything less than utterly helpless. Why do we never feel restored in the gospel and rebuilt out of our exile? Because somehow we won't allow him to call us away from our bone heaps in love. 
Though he says he'll do it, it's his prerogative to do it. I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, meaning I intend to bring you away from them. And we argue while he does it. Can't you leave me here and let me have this? Maybe Frankenstein together something that looks alive even if it isn't. Oh God of holiness and beauty, won't you give me my monster and make us happy together? Maybe we don't allow him to call us away because it's lonely. Only 50,000 Judeans went home under Cyrus's decree. That's only slightly more than the population of Sheboygan, Wisconsin, not exactly a bustling metropolis. And if you live in the power of the resurrection of Jesus, who opens your graves and brings you away strongly, willingly, unflinchingly, if you live in the power of the resurrection of Jesus, you're going to be lonely. There are not a lot of people who want to share that life with you. Even in the church, we prefer bones to the new creation. Maybe we don't let him call us away because it's such a long rebuilding process. Twenty years to rebuild the altar and the temple. Fifty years to rebuild the city wall. Just the wall. And the work had barely begun. And you, you've spent a lifetime tearing yourself down with unbelief and tampered theology and sin ornamented and domesticated like a tiger on a leash and you think that Jesus is just going to cobble together a new you in a weekend. No. Jesus means to rebuild you elementally. Jesus means to rebuild you starting with your marrow. The new creation in grace is meant to last. And so Jesus will patiently, painstakingly rebuild you bit by redeemed bit. But it takes a lifetime, starting with today. If you want fast and easy, you have the wrong gospel. If you want the joy of entire and whole and complete, you're in the right hands to be in Jesus' hands. But he's not going to do it your way, and you should thank him for it. Why do we never feel restored in the gospel? Why are we never rebuilt out of our exile? Because we don't like what God is doing in all of this. We hate him for it. Twice he tells us why he does this. So that you will know I am the Lord. In other words, we refuse to bow to sovereignty. Oh, we love sovereignty on paper. The idea that God is authoritatively sitting over all things, ordaining whatsoever comes to pass. But we hate sovereignty when it comes crashing into our lives for our good because we don't believe for a second that it's good. And he answers, but I give you what I give you so that you will know in your fibers and not quickly forget that I am the Lord. I am your Lord. And to teach you, I give you the dead floor of the valley 
and the reanimation of grace, the bitter tears of the exile and the sweet tears of restoration. But maturity knows that the two go together and you must know, you must know that no one will forgive you and no one will love you and no one will sanctify you and no one will rejoice over you like I will. And convinced of this, you will begin to want what I want for you and then you are rebuilt. It doesn't matter if you are a skeptic wanting to believe that Jesus can do this. Maybe beginning to believe that Jesus can and does do this. Or a Christian, a disciple who believes that of course Jesus can do this, but he probably won't. If you're tired of being dried out, if you want to stop living a skeletal mess, a hollow man, a hollow woman, then start to believe this. You were made so that only the love of God and Jesus could ever fully satisfy you and make you whole. And then you are rebuilt. In December, I watched a dance recital. Through a dancer who lives in my house, I'm a big fan of ballet. And in the recital, there was one little dancer who danced a solo, a little ballerina. And she danced gracefully around the stage, her every movement stitched to the music. And then a terrible thing happened. The CD skipped. And then it went silent. It's a painful experience to watch something like that happen. And in that instant, everyone in the auditorium wished that they could take the place of the little ballerina to spare her the humiliation and the embarrassment of it. But the little ballerina kept dancing. She danced to the music in her head and her heart. Like it never stopped. She kept spinning and twirling her circle around the stage. And then the music resumed and she slipped back into it and rode it all the way to the end of the piece. And she finished to thunderous applause. And we weren't just applauding for her. We were applauding for ourselves because somebody had finally showed us what faith looks like. You want to be restored? You tired of feeling the way you feel? Be restored feels like the music cutting out on you. But Jesus is still there backstage. And he's telling you, oh, it's not over. There's still more dance to dance. You know how to dance this. And he tells us where to put our feet and how to move our arms. And we do it, even though it feels mechanical and jagged and awkward. And then suddenly, the music resumes as Jesus shows us his love again. And then no one has to tell us how to dance. 
the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give to us the grace of this passage that calls us to rise up out of our dry stacks of bones and live in the grace of the gospel. We have torn ourselves down with sin and with our attempts to redeem and approve of ourselves by the law, and none of it is worth. And worst of it, we stand as obstacles to the restoration that you have for us. We won't call our sin what it is. We won't call ourselves helpless. And we just won't give ourselves into your sovereignty. So the music cuts out on us again and again. And we're forced to keep dancing to the music in our heads and our hearts. It's faint sometimes. We can barely hear it. And Jesus standing just out of the frame telling us, dance, it's not over. And when you give to us once again, the obvious ways in which you love us, you open our eyes and make us see. You make us aware all over again. It's like the music resumes. And we hadn't forgotten to dance at all. We have faith, but we have so little joy. And what we pray is that your gospel will work with our little faith and give us great joy. And for this, we'll give you thanks. We ask it in the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit.